0: Well, good morning. I am indeed thankful to be here with you all this morning and to be a part of this and, and to uh, have the opportunity to come up here to the pulpit to preach. As Steve said, my name is Rich Caskey. I'm one of the elders here at Christ Community Bible Church. And uh, when I mentioned to someone that I was going to be preaching this morning and I told him that uh, Jared was going to be out of the pulpit, so we're going to have to settle for the bead team He looked at me and said, Beat Team, huh? Well, that's wishful thinking. So (laughs) with that encouragement, I am excited to be here with you this morning uh, as we open up God's Word. But before we begin, I would like to take this opportunity to remind you of the equipping classes we have coming up. So beginning on September 22nd, we have three equipping classes. And I'm pretty excited because I'll be uh, getting to teach the one basically on how to love God's Word and be transformed by it. I am very excited. There are only three requirements for this class. There are three things you need to bring. You need to bring a Bible, a notebook, and a long sleeve shirt. Because we're going to be rolling up our sleeves and getting into the Word of God on Sunday mornings. And so I want you to come that this is a place that if you are at all wondering how, you know, if it seems impossible to understand the Word of God, if you don't think that you're capable of it, you don't know how, come. uh, We're going to work together through the Word of God, we're gonna study it together, have a great time with that. I'll also give little plugs for the other classes. Charles, where's Charles? Teaching fundamentals of the faith, foundations of the faith. And so, should be a great class for you. And, and to add a little incentive for you to attend Charles's class, uh, anybody who's able to, to stump him with a question on theology, I'll give a buffalo nickel, up to three buffalo nickels uh, for for the duration of the class. So you can try to stump Charles in your theology class. That would be, yeah, you got it. Glad to help. For some reason, they don't want me as the single elder teaching the married and parenting classes because. I've got great ideas about espresso snacks for kids and things like that. And so they're not going to let me do that. But we'll be in, in the, uh, studying the Word of God. So I encourage you, after the service, uh, you can come right up here to the kiosk, sign up for these classes. I encourage you to be involved in that. It's a wonderful opportunity. We will all learn together. And these uh, equipping classes are important because they're important to the mission of Christ Community Bible Church, but they're important to the mission of the church. In general, they're important for the mission that Christ has for us. So they're not only going to be beneficial, but they're going to enable you to achieve your part of that mission. So many years ago, when I had joined the Air Force, and this was back in the mid 80s, And this is back when the movie Top Gun had just come out and and there were jets and everything. I was going to join the Air Force and I did right out of college. Joined the Air Force and I wanted to go to pilot training, but I couldn't because I wore glasses. So I went to Navigesser School instead. And I was going to be a navigator in the Air Force. And I spent four months of just training on basic navigation. Then five more months on training for specialized training. Then another month on that training for survival that's in case you have one more takeoff than you have landings on that day Uh, you learn survival skills for the pilots in here you absolutely get that uh, what i mean by that and then after that i still had four months of, of additional specialized training before i could even go to my first unit i had 14 months of training to do this mission. And then when I got to my unit, was I qualified? No, I actually had another four months of learning the mission. I'm going to sp- I spent a year and a half just in training to get ready to do the mission. And the mission for our unit was pretty simple. The boss had, had squeezed it down into five monosyllable words, to fly, fight, and win. That was it. That was our mission statement. And the Air Force invested 18 months of my life and their funds and the the American people's funds to train me to do that mission. Why? Because the mission was that important. The mission was that important to the Air Force and to the country. And so they spent that money on me to do that. Well, as the Church of Jesus Christ, we have a mission. And how much more important is this mission, the mission that Christ himself has given to us, the mission that Christ has has laid before us. And and this isn't about the mission of a military unit. This is eternity on the line. This is about the souls of people. This is the mission that he has tasked us with. And we're gonna look at a passage today and we're gonna be in Acts and, and Steve read that for us and that is great and we're going to look at what it says about the mission that we have. And I loved what we did and I left my phone somewhere so that it didn't interfere with with the mic, but I was going to pull up the Heidelberg Catechism what we read today because it talked about how we must be fully dedicated to that mission, the great commission. We must be all about that. And so I loved what it said. So how important Is it for that? So please open up your copy of God's Word to the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 1. And just so we're all on the same page, I'm going to read it to us again. And it says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The title for today's sermon is Invincible Power, Unstoppable Mission, The Global Plan of God to Conquer the World. I'll bet when you woke up this morning, you weren't expecting to come to church and hear about global domination. But yet, here we are. And over the next three Sundays, Jared is going to be preaching on the vision and mission for Christ Community Bible Church. And this morning, we're going to look at this portion of Scripture that tells us Jesus' final words before he ascended into heaven. And in this passage, he gives them their mission. And their mission was to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Their mission is our mission. What is our task? Proclaim the gospel. Where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And this fits perfectly with the Great Commission found in Matthew chapter 28. Now we're going to break this passage into three sections. The prologue, or kind of the background of this, the commission, and the ascension. And there are lessons that we can learn from each section as we study this. So what does it say in these first three verses? In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So this book of scripture was written by the physician Luke. Luke. You may remember Luke from the Gospel of Luke. It's the same guy. He wrote a two-volume series. We call it the Gospel According to Luke and then the Acts of the Apostles. He wrote it all as one together, and to understand a little bit what he's saying here, we kind of need to go back to the beginning of the Gospel of Luke because it gives us a little bit more detail about why he was writing and what he was writing. So because we're looking at volume two, let's go back at the beginning of Luke. He is writing to a man named Theophilus and he even says most excellent Theophilus. So this was a real person who was kind of a skeptic about the gospel, a skeptic about Jesus and what he had done, a skeptic about what had happened. And so Luke was writing to him so that he could know the truth and that he could be certain about these things. Why? These things have eternal value. These things are greatly important. So he's writing to Theophilus, and I like what he says here, in the first book, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Did you hear that? The first book dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So what does that tell, you, tell us about volume two Volume two is gonna be a continuation of what Jesus did and taught. Jesus Christ, the risen savior, is still at work. He is still active in this world through his Holy Spirit, through his church. We see in the book of Acts, the Lord still acting. We see several times. It says that the Lord added to their numbers day by day. That's Jesus adding to their numbers day by day. In chapter seven, we have Stephen, the martyr, who was filled with the Holy Spirit, it said. And Stephen saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God in heaven. And he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. In chapter nine, probably one of the most dramatic works of Jesus, the risen Savior, is when Saul was on the road to Damascus, ready to persecute Christians. And he hears a voice from heaven. And that voice identifies himself as Jesus, the one he is persecuting. And Saul's life is transformed forever. Jesus is still active, doing and teaching today. And he does that through his Holy Spirit and through us, his church, and we are gonna see that he has specific mission for us, what we are to be about, what we are to be doing. Well, you may ask yourself, wait a second, wasn't the work of Christ completed? I mean, in, in the gospels, they tell of the finished work of Christ. In fact, in John chapter 17, in the high priestly prayer, on the night before his arrest, Jesus prayed, he said, I have finished the work you gave me to do. And then on the cross, according to John 19, and just before he gave up his life, he said, it is finished. So what is the finished work of Christ? The finished work of Christ is the redemptive work of Christ. He has paid for our sins. We can add nothing to that. There's nothing that we bring to our salvation. There's nothing we bring to redemption on our behalf. Christ finished that work. But there's still more work. The work of spreading the gospel. The work of taking the gospel messages. The message to the end of the world. He is no longer visibly present on earth. But he is doing and teaching by his spirit in his followers. So notice that before Jesus ascended, he gave commands to the disciples and says, uh, "Through the Holy Spirit, he did this." Again, we go back to the Gospel of Luke at the very end of the Gospel of Luke. It gives more information about what just happened. You see, remember, this is, these are two volumes of the same set. So if we go back to the end, we have this account. And this account takes place right after, and you probably remember this, but the account of the two disciples who were on the road to Emmaus. And they had only heard about the crucifixion. They'd only heard about Jesus dying. And they're on the road to Emmaus and Jesus, the risen Lord, appears to them and he's walking with them and he begins teaching them out of scripture that they speak to him and they don't recognize him. And finally, they get to the destination as they're breaking bread. He opens their eyes and they realize who he is. And what do those two disciples do? They hurry back to Jerusalem. They go to the disciples. They say, hey, we just saw the risen Christ on the road to a man. Well, as they're discussing this in Luke 24, it says... Um, And after Jesus had appeared to them, he says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything must be written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Did you hear that? He opened their minds. When it says in there that he uh, gave them commands through the Holy Spirit, he was opening their minds to the scriptures. What does scripture say about Christ. And what does that mean? Thus it is written, he said, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise again from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So this is in the gospel of Luke. At the very end, we see this said What's going on? And and then in the the book of Acts, it's being reiterated by Luke that they were empowered by the Holy Spirit, given commands by the Holy Spirit on what they were to do. And he opened their minds to understand scripture, that they were to take the message of repentance and forgiveness of sins to the nations. And they were witnesses to his death and resurrection. And the disciples had the Old Testament scriptures which proclaimed Christ and he opened their minds to it. Next, he says that he presented himself alive by many proofs. And I I don't want to gloss over this because oftentimes we think of the ancient world and we think, well, well, they were very superstitious in the ancient world. That this would have been normal to have somebody come back to life. Well, it wasn't normal. And in fact, they didn't know what to make of it. Now, they had seen Lazarus raised from the dead. But what, Lazarus had the same body that he had before he died, and that body died again. They saw the risen Christ, and they thought he must have been some sort of disembodied spirit. Why? He could pass through walls and doors. He could appear and disappear. They didn't know what to make of this. And so he, by many proofs, he's showing that that he was the Christ. He was risen, he was resurrected. And this was a resurrection body, which is something that they had really not been aware of. And Jesus has to tell them, no, I am flesh and bone. And he even eats with them. He presents himself alive because this is difficult to believe that something like this could happen. There's nothing to compare it to. And it says that this is after the disciples had gotten back Uh, to Jerusalem, he said, as they were talking about these things and talking about the road to Emmaus, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy, and they were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before him. Why is this important? Well, physical resurrection is part of the kingdom plan. The kingdom of God will be populated by flesh and bone people. Jesus continued to appear to the disciples over 40 days, and he took the opportunity to teach them about the kingdom of God. We see this even back before in Job, when Job proclaims, I know that my Redeemer lives, and I shall see him with my own eyes on the earth. Job had no idea, but he knew that there was going to be something that occurred, and he was going to be able to see his Redeemer one day. And of all the things they could have discussed in those 40 days since the resurrection until he ascended, what is called out is they talked about the kingdom of God. And now this is important. And this is also a little bit difficult. So we'll walk through that. See, there are many important themes that run through the pages of Scripture. The kingdom of God seems to be a central theme that ties them together. So from the beginning, or from before the beginning, until after the end, God is the ultimate king. The Old Testament talks about that a lot. That God is king of the universe. And that is true. And this is what Christ and the apostles discussed. And you see, this is a profound truth that we need to understand. And the kingdom is multifaceted. In the Gospels, it is called the Kingdom of God and the Kingdom of Heaven. It's the same thing. Yet Scripture gives us diverse descriptions of the Kingdom. We must fit these pieces together correctly. The theme of King and Kingdom is explicitly mentioned in 57 of the 66 books of Scripture. The term Kingdom of God is found in 61 separate occurrences in the Synoptic Gospels that is, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus is called the King of Israel, the King of the Jews. The king of kings, king of the ages, immortal, invisible, and king of the nations. And while the term is not found in the Old Testament, the thoughts behind it are found. The thoughts of king and rule and kingdom. So before we look at the development of the kingdom of God found in scripture, let's come to grasp of some of the diverse statements made about the kingdom. Scripture says the kingdom is something that has always existed. It is everlasting. Psalm 10.16 1016 says, The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from the land. Again, in Psalm 145, They speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. But at the same time, we read in Daniel that the kingdom had a definite beginning. In Daniel, it says, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom, yet that will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break into pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. So we see on one hand, it's an enduring kingdom. On the other hand, it has a definite beginning. The kingdom is described as universal. It says the Lord established his throne in heavens and his kingdom rules over all. But it also describes a local rule on earth. In Isaiah, it says, then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed for the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. And his glory will be before his elders. Sometimes it's the direct rule of God for kingship belongs to the Lord. It says in Psalm 22, and he rules over the nations. At other times, God rules through an appointed mediator. This time out of Daniel 4, it says, For your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and he's talking about what happened to Nebuchadnezzar here, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. He will. So a universal, God rules over all, and yet he delegates some of that. The Bible in some places describes the kingdom as entirely future. And it says, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. And on that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. In Matthew 6, it says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yet in other places, It's portrayed as a current reality. It says in Psalm 29, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood and the Lord sits enthroned as king forever. God is sovereign in his unconditional rule. It says he has an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. And yet there are times it seems that he made a covenant with people. It says in Psalm 89, And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings on earth. My steadfast love will keep him forever. And again, we see other examples where there seems to be not contradictions, but differences in descriptions of the kingdom. It says in Luke that the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And yet Jesus said that the kingdom would come. Uh, It says that the people of the kingdom can be cast into hell. In Matthew 8, uh, 12, it says, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And yet again, it says, and only the righteous shall inherit the kingdom. It says that the earthly domain has been temporarily handed over to Satan. And yet all the earth is the Lord's. And so what we see is to, a way to understand the kingdom is we have to look at it in broad aspects. Yes, there is a kingdom of God where God is ruler over all of the universe, over all of creation, all time, all space, all things. And God is on that throne and shall always be on that throne. But there is also kingdoms on the earth where God has delegated earthly rule to certain people. It's still the kingdom. Then there's a third aspect of the kingdom. And that's the spiritual aspect. And that's the aspect where God rules in people's hearts and he begins changing people. And and that can be difficult to understand, but when we look at the kingdom plan and we look at how the kingdom is set up, what do you do with all of the people when we only have lifespans of about 70 years But it's been more than 2,000 years since Christ had left and hasn't yet come back to establish his kingdom. But the kingdom is in our hearts. That's the spiritual realm of the kingdom. So when we read scripture, we must try to understand what kingdom or what aspect of the kingdom or even multiple aspects is scripture talking about. So when we look, Christ had been talking to the disciples about the kingdom for 40 days. This is part of the plan that Christ has for the people. I like the uh, a description that's given in the book, Biblical Doctrine. It's a, it's a systematic theology book. And uh, one of the editors is John MacArthur. I really like that uh, book. But it says that the kingdom of God can be explained in this manner. The eternal triune God created a kingdom and two kingdom citizens, Adam and Eve, who were to have dominion over it. But an enemy deceived them, seduced them into breaking in allegiance with the king, and caused them to rebel against their sovereign creator. God intervened with consequential curses that exist to this day. And ever since, he has been redeeming sinful, rebellious people to be restored as qualified kingdom citizens, both now in a spiritual sense and later in a kingdom on earth sense. Finally, the enemy will be vanquished forever, as will sin. Thus, Revelation 21 and 22 describes the final and eternal expression of the kingdom of God, where the triune God will restore the kingdom to its original purity, with the curse having been removed, and the new heaven and the new earth becoming the everlasting abode of God and His people. Here's kind of the simplified version. We are new covenant believers commissioned to take the gospel to the ends of the earth so Jesus can populate the kingdom with his people. His kingdom plan is in place. Our role right now is to find the lost and get them to the kingdom. That's our mission. That's what we are to be about. And that's what he would do here next in the commission And beginning in verse 4, it says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He told the disciples to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. I'm sure their minds raced to some of the Old Testament passages that they knew. In the book of Joel, it says, And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. So they're hearing about this pouring out of the spirit. And what do they think about? Well, they think about the scriptures that they know. We call that the Old Testament. In Ezekiel, it says, Therefore prophesy and say to them, He says in in chapter 36 of Ezekiel, And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. So if you are one of the disciples, and what you know of Scripture is the Old Testament, and you hear about the kingdom of God, you've been discussing the kingdom of God, and now Jesus talks about this pouring out, this baptizing of the Holy Spirit that's coming, What are you thinking about? Your mind is going back to what you know of Scripture. And what you know of Scripture says that this is the time. This is the kingdom time. Something's happening significant. And in Ezekiel, it talks about a restoration of the kingdom to Israel in the land. And why do I say all of that? Because sometimes we're a little harsh on these disciples. We think that, oh boy, they didn't get it. They'd been spending 40 days talking about the kingdom of God. And yet, the disciples asked the question about the timing of the kingdom. He's talking about the kingdom and now the Holy Spirit, and it certainly points to their Old Testament understanding of the kingdom of God. So should we be surprised when they ask specifically about Israel? No. No. The Davidic covenant spoke about a descendant of David ruling on the throne. The Old Testament didn't explicitly talk about the time between the first coming and the second coming. That's something that was new. That's a mystery about the kingdom revealed in the New Testament. This is part of the mystery of the kingdom. Jesus revealed during his his ministry. In fact, after the Jewish leaders had blasphemed the Holy Spirit, Jesus specifically taught in parables about the kingdom so that these mysteries would remain hidden from those Jewish leaders' eyes. So, do you see what the disciples asked? They asked now that you're talking about the kingdom, you're talking about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Is this it? Is this when you're setting up your kingdom on earth? And I've read from authors who really criticize the disciples for this question. Listen to Jesus' answer to them. Jesus says, It's not yours to know the time. He didn't say, you guys got it all wrong. I just spent another 40 days with you explaining the kingdom and you're still getting it all wrong. No, he didn't say that. He doesn't reject their premise of an earthly kingdom. What he does is says, it's not for you to know the time. See, that's part of the mystery of the kingdom. The mystery of the kingdom was, if you looked at the Old Testament, it looks like when the Messiah comes, he establishes his kingdom on earth. That's what it looks like. You read those passages, boom. The coming of the Messiah, established the kingdom. What the mystery is that's revealed in the New Testament is the first coming of the Messiah, and then this indeterminate age where this kingdom is now being populated by people from all over the earth, from all nations, are coming into the population of the kingdom. And the Messiah will come again. And when he comes again, he will establish the kingdom on earth and it'll be populated by these people across now the millennial, the millennium. So Jesus didn't say, hey, you you guys don't get it. He could have corrected him on the spot, but he didn't. He made no comment uh, at all uh, about how they got it wrong. Instead, he talks about the timing. And this is, matches what Jesus had said during his earthly ministry that we are simply to be ready at all times. So, this matches the teaching of Jesus in the Gospels when it comes to the kingdom and his return. We are not to know that. But uh, God's ultimate kingdom will always prevail. And now we had the spiritual kingdom taking place in people's hearts. But the promised kingdom, promised to Abraham and to Israel and to David, reiterated by and through the prophets, had not yet come to pass. The disciples believed in the actual kingdom for Israel, and Jesus didn't change that expectation. He only changed the question of timing. Instead, what Jesus told them to focus on was their task. He said that you will be witnesses. He said, You'll receive power from the Holy Spirit when it has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. There's the task. The Lord provides the Holy Spirit to believers. But our task is to be one of witnessing. And this task has been passed down through generations of the church that our job is to be witnesses. That's what we're called to do. We know the outcome. We know the end state. We can go to the end of the book and we can see how it all culminates. Well, what do we do now? Because we don't know when it culminates. So what we do now is we be about to work. We are to be about the work of the gospel ministry. Taking the message of Jesus Christ to the world. And you know what? He has strategically placed us now for this time and season in the DFW area that has more than six and a half million souls in the DFW area. Our mission field here is tremendous. The opportunity that we have to be witnesses is outstanding before us. We are called to be witnesses. But he didn't leave it at just that. He didn't just say, well, go out and be witnesses. He said he's going to give us the Holy Spirit. And what's the purpose of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit gives us the power that we need. It emboldens us. It enables us. When we take the gospel message out, and I have been out with people witnessing. Uh, Years ago, we had the evangelism explosion training uh, earlier in our church. And a group of us were out at a laundromat and we were witnessing and it was one of the guys, one of the students, it was his turn to witness to somebody. And God bless him. He got pretty nervous and really, really messed up the gospel presentation. I mean, we, you know, you have your questions you're supposed to go through, the scriptures you're supposed to refer to. He got confused on all of that. And he was just muddling through what he could. And the man got saved. It was not by our eloquent words. It's not by anything, any power we bring to this. The man got saved because the Holy Spirit's part of this and the Holy Spirit is at work. We're there doing what we need to be doing and about our task. We are to be witnesses. We have seen this at the campuses here I remember witnessing at um, UTA and it seemed that even in just one night we had three people back to back to back that reminded us of the, the parable of the soils. One man, absolutely hostile to the gospel. So much so he declared that he was more righteous than God. And I'm not joking. And we quickly broke that one off. Another man as we're witnessing to him, got very excited. It seemed that every word we spoke, every verse we quoted, he got more and more excited about the gospel message. And we are going through the entire presentation, presenting the gospel to him, the good news, the fact that he had sinned against a holy and righteous God, the fact that Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for sins, rose again from the grave. You put your trust in Jesus, you can be saved. We got to the very end and he said, whoa, whoa, you want a commitment from me? And he walked away. It's like the the parable of the seed that, the seed that fell among the weeds. It grew up quickly, but but also there was no depth of not the reeds, the the shallow soil the rocky soil. There was no depth to it. And then we had a man who sat and listened to it, listened to the presentation, asked a lot of questions, and the Lord broke his heart before us that day, and he got saved. That soil was ready. We don't know what the soil is when we're out there sowing seeds. When we're out there presenting the gospel, when we're out reaching out to people, we don't know the response. We simply know what our task is. And our task is to present the gospel. Our task is to be witnesses. And we are His witnesses. Some are good witnesses in both word and deed. Others are very poor witnesses in word and deed. You see, we're all witnesses. You don't get out of that. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a witness. And people are watching and they're listening. How's your witness? This is our task. This is our mission. And in our country, it is becoming more and more difficult to preach this message This is not because we have finally reached everybody and now we have to struggle to find those who haven't heard. That's not the issue. No, because we now, uh, we no longer have at least what we would say as a culture of Christianity. When I was young, growing up, most people at least went to church. They respected the Bible. They respected Christianity. They certainly respected the morals that Christianity presented that the scriptures held. That's no longer true. Now, our message is ridiculed. If we say we believe in creation or miracles of the Bible, we're labeled as anti-science. If we preach salvation through Christ alone, we're labeled as bigots. If we hold to Christian teachings and biblical morality, we're labeled extremists. The more distinctly Christian we are in this world, the more we will be called out as intolerant and even accused of hate crimes because of Christ. But oh, what a mission field. That is nothing that should intimidate us. Why? We go out with the power of the Holy Spirit. We have been commissioned by the king of the universe to go do this. Do we worry at all about what a man might say? I love this about our sister service, the Marine Corps. In the Marine Corps, you know, at all military bases, they'll have a gate guard. And you walk up to the gate guard, you show them your ID, and they either let you on. And, you know, if you have a good ID, if you're valid, you should be there, and so on. And, of course, if you you watch movies and things like that, you can see there are times when, when certain level of officers come forward, and they try to pull the rank. In other words, I shouldn't have to show my ID. I'm I'm important. Let me in. And so uh, to get around that, the Marine Corps did something very simple. They said, all right, gate guard, you will check every ID all the time, and your order comes from the top Marine. The commandant of the Marine Corps has given you this order. Is there anyone else who has more authority than the commandant of the Marine Corps? No. And so every gate guard checks the IDs because the the order comes from the top. Our orders come from the top. They come from Jesus Christ, the king of the universe, that we are to be about this mission. And so the elders of Christ Community Bible Church see this mission given by Christ and know that it is our mission also as a body of believers. And we have this great mission field of DFW We are his witnesses, but we're not mere witnesses thrown to the wolves of this world. We have the Holy Spirit to indwell us and to empower us and to speak the gospel of Christ. Finally, let's bring this passage to a close. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood beside him in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come again in the same way as you saw him go, into heaven. And with these words, Jesus ascended. And it's here we also have the promise of his return, the hope of his return. He has not abandoned us to the world. He has given us his Holy Spirit and he is coming back. Oh, what glorious day. The Apostle John said, come Lord Jesus, come. His hope too was in the return of Christ. Now we don't know when he's going to return. We only know the certainty of his return. So what do we do in the meantime? We work. We serve. We long to hear those words from our Lord one day. Well done, good and faithful servant. So the message of the passage for us today, Christ is still alive working and teaching through the Holy Spirit. And he has given us the task of witnessing to this world. And he's empowered us by his Holy Spirit. We don't know when he will return, but he will return one day to establish his kingdom. And we look forward to that day. Now, I would be guilty right now if I don't take this opportunity to witness to you. You see, I don't know if everyone here is a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. So to the believers who are here, who are doing well, walking according to the Spirit, I want to encourage you to run the race with endurance to the end. Keep up the good work. Christ is worthy of all your sacrifice. He is worthy of all your effort. Run the race to the end. Keep fighting the good fight. For my brothers and sisters in Christ who are struggling this morning, whether it's due to sin or some other reason, I want to remind you of the riches that we have in Jesus Christ. I want you to remember what Jesus Christ did for us on our behalf. Remember, while we were yet sinners, He died for us. Christ is more than able to heal you, to restore you. If you feel like He is far away, as Jared would say, cling to Him with white-knuckled tenacity, and He will bring you through this time. Now, for those who either know for certain that they are not a believer in Jesus Christ or are unsure if they are counted among the believers, a born-again believer. I have a message for you. See, the Bible tells us that we've all been infected from the very womb with sin. We not only rebel against our Creator, we want to rebel against our Creator. We are hostile to our Creator. And the penalty for that rebellion is eternal separation from God. But even in that state of open, hostile rebellion, God loves you. And 2,000 years ago, he sent his son Jesus to become fully human while remaining fully God. I know that's difficult to, to grasp and to understand. But he did it so that Jesus could live a perfect, sinless life on our behalf. Then at the appointed time, Christ suffered and died on the cross for our sins He then rose again from the dead three days later in glory in a resurrected body. And if we believe Christ died for our sins and rose again from the dead, we can put our trust in him to save us from our sins. And when we trust in Christ, our father in heaven places all of our sin on Christ and in return places Christ's righteousness on us. That is the gospel message or said differently, that's the good news of Jesus Christ. If you don't know where you stand regarding salvation, eternal life, I implore you to speak with one of the elders after the service. We want to speak with you. Steve, who read scripture there, Jared sitting up front, Charles along the side, we would love to speak with you. If you are unsure at all or want to talk to us about anything, we beg you, come and talk. This is important. This is the day that you can have salvation. Let us pray. Lord, we are blessed to have your truth to understand the gospel message and your mission for the church. We are thankful for our role as witnesses of the gospel and we want to express our love to you and to serve you in a way that will produce eternal joy. We give you glory. Make us faithful in all that we say and do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.